Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Go get it now. Please check out my new nonfiction book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel. Publishers Weekly gives the book a starred review, calling it a thrilling investigation and a wildly enjoyable outing. Lee Child says, outstanding and a conclusion worthy of James Bond. Historian Jay Winnick says, equal parts Walter Isaacson and Sherlock Holmes, the mysterious case of Rudolph Diesel, yanks back the curtain on the greatest caper of the 20th century. The book is out now, everywhere you get your books. Please check it out, and I promise you'll love it. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Scott Turow. From the time of his fiction debut in 1987 with Presumed Innocent, Scott has been one of the most successful writers in the world. In 1990, he graced the cover of Time magazine, back when that was really a thing, the magazine calling him, quote, the bard of the litigious age. In addition to his writing, Scott has been a leader in the writing community, having served two terms as president of the Authors Guild. He's also done a ton of pro bono legal work. Because not only is he the bard of litigation, he is, in fact, a very talented lawyer. Scott, it's great to be with you. Thanks for, for coming in. Oh, thank you, Doug. It's really nice to be here with you. Thanks. So our, our drink for today will be some club soda, which is, uh, which is great to help us keep our wits about us for this conversation. Uh, so I'll get that started here with a, a bit of la- uh, lemon. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering why I didn't ask for Chateau Lafitte, you know. <laughs> right, I mean, it's all on Sirius XM. We right. might as well yeah, jack right. up the bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next time, you know, next time you're coming through New York, we'll, yeah. Uh, yeah. we'll do that. And I, I really appreciate you coming in. I know we've been trying to book this one for a little while, um, coordinating schedules for your visit through New York. Yeah. Well, I'm here often to see son and grandchildren, so. That's great. But sometimes it's hard to make it work with with your schedule well cheers, cheers. great to Thanks see you so much tasty hey little club soda lemon it's a spot so i know you were born in chicago and you've left at times for school and other things but chicago really has been and remains your home the chicago area well close to true um I am now a Florida resident. Adrian and I 
spend m- more time in Naples, Florida than anywhere else these days. Um, that is news to me from the last time we were together. Yeah, when did that happen? Um, actually, I came when, when we met. I had come to California from Florida, so because I remember doing that. Um, and I don't know if my residency was uncertain at that point or not. Uh, Adrian was a senior vice president at one of the big banks, and they decided to reorganize her department. And uh, she said, you know, I've just spent too long learning this job. I am not getting reorganized. So uh, she wanted to hang it up. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, it's not a crisis. It's an opportunity. Uh, And we'd always wanted to uh, get away from Chicago in the winter. And so we ended up in Naples. Uh, Adrian had been there once when she was seven. I had never been there at mm-hmm. all. We were going to Sarasota where my sister was. And Adrian walked in one day and said, did you know that Naples is four and a half degrees warmer on average in the winter than Sarasota? And I said, well, that's ridiculous. They're two hours apart. That's not possible. That's like saying Milwaukee's four and a half degrees colder. Sure enough, it's true. So we went to Naples, sight unseen, uh, and but it's worked out. You know, we own a place down there now, and yeah. uh, it's a great place to write. And then, of course, in the about the middle of May, we migrate back to the Midwest. That's I've heard rumors that the East Coast of Florida, that sort of Palm Beach uh-huh. corridor, draws more from New York. Yeah. And the sort of northeast, whereas the west coast of Florida, where you are, Naples, draws more from the Midwest, Chicago, Ohio, things like that. I, I think that's completely true. Um, I have to also doff my cap to the considerable contingent of Canadians who come to the west coast of Florida, and uh, they add a civilizing element that yeah. you know we in the U.S. probably lack. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. So it's great to hear you're enjoying the Florida weather. It's nice to have yeah. a little little warm uh, warm climate, especially uh, that Chicago wind. I was there one winter, and nothing stops yeah. the wind yeah. when you're yeah. there. It's just the coldest thing. So going back a bit, though, you went to Amherst College. True, I read. So that was your, I guess, your first departure from Chicago, maybe. And there's something going on there because. Chris Bojelian, who was on the show, yeah. is an Amherst guy, yeah. as well as David Foster Wallace, Harlan yep. Coben, Dan yep. Brown, and yep. you. It's just all true. What's uh, all true for a small school? That's pretty good output of best-selling yeah. authors. <laughs> Not to mention um, uh, Lauren Groff. Lauren Groff, but she's a terrific writer too, and an Amherst grad. That's an amazing, uh, like you say, an amazing output of, of bestsellers. It's a lot of books yeah. coming out I mean, of Amherst for a small college. It's very good. Yeah. So from Amherst, you go on to uh, Stanford, a creative writing program right. at Stanford. Right. Right. I was a writing fellow at Stanford uh, for two years. Uh, was very, you know, in some ways a wonderful time, in some mm-hmm. ways not. Um, great because I was surrounded by a lot of very talented young authors, some of whose names. Um, you would know people like Raymond Carver or my friend Alice Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, some who you don't know because not because they lacked great talent, but you know they were waylaid by bad luck. Of often, alcohol and drugs mm-hmm. intervened to curtail promising careers. Well, it's not only are you known for writing legal thrillers and, and novels with a, a legal bent to them, but uh, you obviously had this 
big legal career prior to becoming a writer. So were you always wrestling with this, will I be a writer, will I be a... Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? I always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a kid. Mm -hmm. It was my mom's dream, uh, and I guess I just sort of incorporated her ambitions for herself. Um, I didn't get along with my father, who was a doctor, so I didn't want to be like him. Uh, so I, you know, I guess I pirated my mother's uh, were, were they, ambition. They remained married, or oh, were yeah, they? they yeah, they were. They were married. Maybe yeah. they shouldn't have been, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they they made that decision uh, to stick it out. Um, you know, my dad was a difficult guy, and there were lots of valid reasons for that. But he was a hard father to have. He's a great well, doctor. How did the law come into play? Because that's a pretty big side hustle if you know you want to yeah. be a writer. So I'm at Stanford, and as I said, they were good years in some ways. Bad years because my own work was not going very well. I was just sort of um, not finding my destiny as a writer, and I knew I was trying to pull it out of myself. And as you know, well, you just you can't do that. You can't demand something from yourself mm -hmm. if you don't have that inner urge. And I began to look around and figure, well, what the hell am I going to do to make a living? I was teaching at Stanford. Uh, I was sort of a foothold in the academic world. I was a lecturer in the English department. I didn't want to be an English professor. It's a great calling for people who want to be English professors. But, I, you know, it's not something I wanted to blunder into. And there were things happening in academic English that I correctly foretold that I was not going to be happy with, especially the politicization of the teaching of literature. Um, so I could have gone down to Hollywood. My ex had a cousin who probably would have found me a studio job, you know, knocking out scripts, at least mm -hmm. for a while. I didn't really want to do that. There was advertising that just never held any appeal. All of my closest friends had gone from college to law school. I started, you know, visiting them and seeing what they were doing, especially the ones who were practicing criminal law, and I thought it was really interesting. And then I began to notice that the close friends I'd made in the Bay Area who weren't writers were all lawyers. And, uh, you know, I began to get this kind of shocking idea, do I, do I want to be a lawyer? Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad, as I said before, was kind of a, an, an emotional guy and never understood lawyers. And uh, in my father's way, wouldn't let him in the house. So I literally I had no idea what lawyers did. Um, so when my friends started practicing, it was a bit of a revelation because I thought the questions that they dealt with were really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I began to entertain this idea of going to law school. And, um, you know, there were all kinds of things that pushed me in that direction. But significantly, Nancy Packer, who was then the director of the Writing Center at Stanford, was um, married to a guy, or had been married, and at that time Herb was gone, but a famous law professor named Herb Packer. And she was a denizen of the law school and I said I, I came to her with this idea I confided to her and says you would be great at that mm -hmm. <clears throat> you would be great at that and I remember she gave me a lecture I can see how that would pick up on your gifts because yeah. clear writing is clear thinking and yeah. and you're developing an argument it's it's sort of telling a story and so, at least in the sort of litigation side of the law 
that might tap into yeah. your gifts. Well, she can be brutally honest, and uh, Nancy, whose son, whose son is George Packer, and whose daughter is Ann Packer, both of them very successful writers in their own right. Um, but she had, you know, she said there, there are two things lawyers can do. One is this sort of very sharp, incisive, bit by bit analysis, uh, and she, and the other is the kind of the big picture thinkers and should you get the big picture mm-hmm. um, and you'll be good at it so with that encouragement you know I sort of applied in secret without telling any of my colleagues and um, and find yourself at Harvard Law at School Harvard of Law all School. places my yeah. gosh yeah so you were at Harvard Law uh, 75 to 77 I think and I did look this up. Did you study? Did you happen to study under Alan Dershowitz, who I think was already a professor there by yeah, then? Yeah, Dershowitz was a professor. I knew him. Um, I always say that going to law school was the great break of my literary career. Mm-hmm. And that is because by the time I arrived at Harvard Law School, I had a contract to write a book about my experiences, which, you know. By the time you arrived already? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah. this became, of course, the famous 1L. That was 1L. Yeah. So. Um, I had written a letter to my then agent trying to explain that I was making this U-turn in my life, and it was, just sounded so lame that I pitched out this idea for a book in the middle of the letter, which <clears throat> I frankly didn't anticipate writing it, but she then showed the letter to Ned Chase, um, now of blessed memory, father of Chevy Chase, and uh, Ned was you know, pretty much as zany as his son, and he <laughs> signed a contract on the spot. Um, so that's how I ended up with this contract to write a book. That's amazing. So my wife, who was a recovering lawyer, went to law school, says that at that time and to this day, every so 1L stands for year one of law school. Correct. It's this, you know, basically the a very sort of standard type format it's a year. Computer, that every, it was a computer abbreviation. You know, on yeah. the old computer forms before, you know, computers had enough memory to hold mm-hmm. a lot of data, they would just abbreviate first-year law student as 1L, mm-hmm. on the, at least on the forms at Harvard. And so it, it's now standard for standard reference to all first-year law students. I mean, so, so listeners know, of course, Scott's fiction debut is presumed innocent 10 years later right. in 87, but 1L is a nonfiction book about the first year of law school in 1977. Correct. Right. Um, and a, I mean, you must, are you still getting residuals on this? I assume yeah, law students are still buying still this as they. <laughs> it's still in print. Amazing. It's still making money. Um, I was, you know, amused about seven, eight years ago when a couple of my publishers had a fight over who was going to who was going to publish one L. So, yeah. um, you know, law school is a lot different. There is, you know, as as, as your wife can tell you, mm-hmm. sometimes kind of a crisis of identity. Um, in the first year in law school, and that's what that book gets at. Well, she would recommend law school to everyone. It's a great education and teaches you how to think and analyze, as you say. And I think she even loved practicing law to a point, but um, I'm not sure she'd recommend practicing law to everyone, but she certainly would yeah, recommend law school to everyone. with and for a close friend of mine, and you and I talked about this last time, and, yeah. um, who, who was, when, when she began to appear on TV, was very insistent about telling everybody what a good lawyer she was i have heard that from many many folks at jones day and other places that she was she was ter- one guy said she'll never be as good on tv as she was as a lawyer and i i don't know if that's true but she uh, she definitely was a great lawyer so after harvard law you return to chicago and you're practicing as a i think an ada in chicago yeah assistant u.s attorney 
yeah. from 78 to 86 or so and works right. in fairly big corruption cases yeah. i think right yeah great so, gig i mean loved it the best the best law job anybody can ever have you know you can string assistant u.s attorneys from end to end across the country and they will all tell you the same thing everyone's favorite job is a lawyer that's great to hear but and yet you then go but so you're sort of you still have this parallel uh writing legal career so you're there from 78 to 86 and then 87 presumed innocent comes yeah. out which is yeah. just you know this mind-blowing novel that takes right. the world by storm was that your first attempt at fiction or did you have other no, attempts I, that are bottom drawered i i had written at least four other novels before that so throughout serious. that 78 86 period you were always kind of writing oh, on I, the side. when i went to law school i made this vow to myself that i wasn't going to give up this dream of being uh a novelist and um but I thought, being honest, that might mean nothing more than writing one good short story every year. But the only time I could find to write um, was on the morning commuter train. Mm. And so I did it. I wrote every morning on the commuter train. By the time I, you know, after work, I was just too, you know, roiled up by everything, you know, in the life of a young prosecutor. But 30 minutes a day I would write, and that, frankly, was one of those lessons from the days at Stanford. Wally Stegner told us, you know, write every day, even if it's 30 minutes a day, keep mm -hmm. writing, keep the machinery oiled. So that's what I was doing. And eventually, that those 30 minutes a day became, you know, the beginnings of, of Presumed Innocent. You know, that advice, so Diana Gabaldon was on the show uh, some time ago. And she has those, the Outlander books, and they're uh -huh. made into shows. And see, actors come over, and they're always like, how do you do it? She says, write 10 minutes a day. Yeah. And none of them can do it. <laughs> they, they're not even just the discipline to sit down. So that's great advice to take, but I think there has to be something inside you that can even take that advice oh, and, and follow it. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> half the trial lawyers I meet all think they're going to be great novelists. And I tell them, okay, well, Start writing it down. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me your mm -hmm. great story. Um, write it down. Mm -hmm. And uh, precious few actually do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a good uh, move into the process section of the of the talk, which I I like to ask everyone because listeners always love to hear how you know this guy wrote Presumed Innocent and all these great books. You know, how does he do it, and what are the, what are the things? And it reminds me a little bit of so when we were at that author book festival years ago. Um, so listeners know there, there are a number of tracks. So I would be speaking here, Scott would be speaking there. And if you weren't at the same time, you could go see these other people. And I, Scott's a, an icon. I'm like, I got to see Scott Turow. So I went to yours and you were up there and you told this funny story about this touches on your process a little bit. When you start to write, you would say to your wife, I'm going to go talk to my imaginary friends right. for a few hours. Right. I, could you Can you talk to that piece of your, uh, yeah. your process? Well, I just... Um you know, I've, I've known and been friendly with writers who agonize. Anne Beatty, for example, is a great short story writer and novelist. And, you know, Anne, I, I would sometimes listen to Anne while she was at Northwestern, which is when I got to know her. I mean, you know, she just talked about it as such agony. It's like, why do you do it? I'm, mm. I'm one of those people who looks forward every morning to what I'm going to write. And that doesn't mean that it goes well. I find the older I get, the harder the beginnings are. 
uh, and I spent a lot of time just wandering around in a fog and bumping into furniture and um, <laughs> and it's hard and it's hard to keep you know I often joke in those periods that uh, you know I ought to put a seat belt on my desk chair um, because I'm so inclined to, to wander away but once it's going once once I can feel and see the world that I'm trying to create I mean I love going there mm-hmm. and uh, as my comment that I started making to Adrian, you know, when we began living together years ago, that I'm going to go upstairs and play with my imaginary friends. Um, you know, I that that's just how I feel. And I think writing fiction especially calls on that part of ourselves that, you know, is alive in every six-year-old or three-year-old who's playing with their imaginary friends. I mm-hmm. watch my granddaughters in particular, you know, in this the 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 current three and a half year old you know she's just carried away in these conversations with people who aren't there and I'm thinking, you know all she needs is a word processor and she'll be all set yeah so, it's great to see that that natural creativity yeah. is there it's in all of us though it's just yeah. you know if, as we get older we learn to I don't mean stifle but redirect it uh, and so the one advantage of having tried to write from a very early ages you know that channel never closed down Mm -hmm. i i know what you mean i I look forward to that quiet time alone time i i think if you're the type of person who embraces some alone time comfortable being alone that's that's a helpful ingredient to to have do you outline the books ahead of time or do you dive right in well um of late my publishers have sort of they have this this funny habit of wanting to know what they're paying me for <laughs> so, so they want you know some kind of outline mm-hmm. of 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 what i'm going to write um are you generally on a multi-book deal or are you going to go buy the book yeah i am now uh, this is the the second of two books mm-hmm. um but um you know when i was practicing law years ago i refused to do that because i never knew when a trial was going to get in the way of a delivery date, but I left the practice of law, at least most for the most part. Um, you know, I'm I still have an appearance on file in one case, but but I, I mean, so when you wrote your second, third, fourth books, were you still practicing yes, a lot of? Yes. Wow. Yes. So and still, so were you writing then? Still on the train and when, when, I wrote when, a lot on the train. Um, I sort of pioneered working at home. Um, seriously, <laughs> long long before. Most other people were doing it because, you know, you can get you could, could get your email at home or your faxes. You just bought a fax machine and mm-hmm. came in there, never hid from my clients where I was. Uh, and, you know, you could tell the good clients from the bad clients because the, when the good clients called you at home, they really had something they wanted, they needed your advice about. So would you, after Presumed Innocent, I didn't know this about you, I should have known this, but after Presumed Innocent came out, you know, in the years following that, would you walk into a courtroom and litigate things? Yeah, for sure. I tried I mean, people many. are like, you're a celebrity I, star by I, that time. It must have been bizarre uh, for the judge and the opposing counsel. It, it, um, it generally speaking, was a neutral factor. Um, there were judges who... I mean, you could be you could be kicked off a jury for being that level of celebrity, let alone being one yeah, of the yeah, the litigators. Oh, for, for Thomas Marsden, but anyway, um, 
There were judges who uh, resented having somebody in the courtroom who, frankly, was better known than they were. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember at least one case where I told the client, you're going to need another lawyer. This, this, this judge is not going to go this, your way. This yeah. guy just hates my guts, and I, have, I don't know him. He has no reason to feel that way, but he's insecure. And sometimes there were judges who were maybe, you know, deferential, uh, which is always helpful. Um, and people on the other side are sometimes worried about that, and sometimes there were people who were head-hunting because, you know, I had this reputation outside the courtroom but I was lucky enough, because I had been an assistant U.S. attorney, generally I practiced in the same courthouse in Chicago where, you know, I'd come of age as a prosecutor. So the judges knew me. The criminal bar in a city like Chicago is relatively small, especially on the federal side. So I was dealing with people who knew me already. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Generally speaking, it was a non-factor in my life, and you know you want to <laughs> you want to believe that um, you you want to believe that you know when authors are well known um, that you know it would be a factor with a jury, but the one time uh, the opposing counsel wanted the uh, jury interrogated on this, the only person who recognized the last name was uh, a woman whose child my father had delivered. So it was my father's last name. That <laughs> was, was the only reason Turo made any difference to her. That's funny. Well, I, I did not realize that uh, you were still litigating cases after presumed innocent. Yeah, I just figured you were uh, for a long time. Yeah. rock star by then and, and not doing that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. So a uh, couple other quick questions on just technical aspects of process. Do you write it by hand or do you keyboard? No, I was taught in a high school journalism class to compose on a typewriter. And so that has been a lifelong habit. When I was writing 1L on the morning um, commuter train, of course, it had to be long because mm-hmm. there wasn't such a thing as a laptop. But um I remember after Presumed Innocent, I bought one of the very first um, sort of little computers. It was made by Panasonic. It weighed about eight pounds, mm-hmm. but you, I could write on it. And Like a little uh, word processor yeah, type thing. Was word, even a little tiny yeah, word processor. I remember those. And, uh, you know, that's, all, that's, that's what I do. I travel with an iPad and a key, with, with a keyboard attached. And I, you know, I wrote on the airplane on the way here i wrote on the way from the from the airport in the uber mm-hmm. to, to you know this interview that's amazing uh, i just you know i can is there a favorite spot at home that you'd like to be whether naples or chicago or, or really anywhere is fine i have um in in all the different places that we live i have um nice office space you know where i can sometimes it's a bedroom I share with my granddaughters as is the case mm-hmm. in our place in southern Wisconsin but um, yeah I, I, and I like writing in those spaces when I'm really going um, but very often to start the day I will sit with the iPad in my lap in like the sunroom in our house in Evanston mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know especially Adrian's a late riser, so I'm often in the house by myself with the dogs, and so you know I let the dogs out, and uh, and I'll sit and write for an hour, sometimes even an hour and a half, before she's up and around, and then we'll say good morning, and I'll escape and go. Then I'll go upstairs to the study. Do you revise as you go, or are you yeah. more of a sprint to the finish line and then come back? No, it's constant revision. Yeah, and I always when people ask me. How do you get over writer's block? I always say that rereading what you wrote uh, and making corrections on it will begin to get you. That can grease the wheels a little. Yeah, Yeah. it always works for me. That's fine. I wonder if that's part of your legal training as well. There's that funny legal saying: "If I had more time, I'd have written a shorter brief." Maybe that that helps you out there a little bit. Being a lawyer did teach me that not every word I write is deathless. And, uh, you know, I I probably learned to cut better being a lawyer Mm -hmm. than I did 
uh, with anything I was taught while I was at Stanford. Mm-hmm. I want to get your thoughts on the, this is another thing that I heard you speak about. I think this, you were on a panel, so I can't remember if it was you or someone else on the panel. I think Richard North Patterson might have been up there on yeah, that panel that day. Yeah, okay. um, The question was on the, the difference between novel writing versus writing for film and TV. Mm-hmm. And the topic came up on this panel, and, and you and I think the others were in agreement that it can often be a trap for a novelist to get lured into writing for film and TV. They might they might embark on that and just it might not work out and then they can get mired on it and they return to the novel and then for others it's very successful they can sort of make that migration path but what are your thoughts on the difference between the two types of writing and and what's what's been your own experience well they're very different and um i always used to say that i never wanted to write the screenplay for you know, films based on my work because I felt it was like performing surgery on myself. And uh, movies especially can only be a fragment of a, of a novel. They, they're really, Brian Dennehy, may rest in peace, mm-hmm. when I met him on the set of Presumed Innocence, said, said that to me. He says, a movie is a reader di- reader's digest version of that story. Mm-hmm. And um, so I never was attracted to doing that with my own work. About 10 years ago, I started writing pilots for, you know, TV. Um, and because I have been very interested in episodic television and especially what it's now become with mm-hmm. the streaming series. Um, so, I, you know, I be, finally began to do some screenwriting. And, um, and, I, and by the way, I cannot work on two books at once, but I found it absolutely there was no conflict between writing scripts at the same time I was writing a novel. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I always say that um, script writing is, the best of it is epigrammatic, meaning that you're looking for, you know, the one sentence, the one line of dialogue that sort of um, sums up an entire situation. And... Uh, you know, the the screenplays I most admire, like Unforgiven, the old Clint Eastwood mm-hmm. movie, you go back and look at that movie and listen to the dialogue. Um, I love that. He should have armed himself. He's going to decorate a saloon with my friend. Exactly. There's some I mean, great it's lines just, in there. Just an amazing, amazing uh, script. And uh, But, you know, each line of dialogue advances that story. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and often with very little said, but the dramatic arc gets carried forward, um, literally with almost every word that's spoken, and that's appropriate uh, given the you know the time constraints of of, of the movies in particular as a medium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I presumed Innocent is being remade now. I wanted to ask you about a, that. Yeah, Apple yeah. TV Plus, and I'm interested to see what happens with eight hours of screen time mm-hmm. versus you know the two hours that the I mean know. it's a daunting thing to take on because you mentioned Brian Dennehy who I love Raul Julia yeah you know lost too early terrific and of course Harrison Ford it was so well done I mean you know of course like Dennehy said it's it's a fragment of what right. the book is um but it's a tough act to follow, but you've got David E. Kelly and J.J. Yeah. J. Abrams. I mean, you right. can do no better than those right. guys. Right. Um, we spent a couple of days on the set in April. I, 
have to say it looked looked pretty good. The the lead is Jake Gyllenhaal, who's mm-hmm. a you know mammothly gifted actor, and uh, you know, and I, I it brings a kind of vulnerability that um, is characteristic of what I saw in the character. So we'll 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 see how it turns out. You know, you never you never know when the camera's running. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how it's all going to get pasted together, but. I'm pretty optimistic. And David, you know, has had to make changes from the book I wrote, um, Mm -hmm. not just to fill out the story, but because it's a much different era. And, um, you know, Presumed Innocent was written before DNA. And, you know, those who've read the book and remember the ending, you know, there there would be no trial for mm-hmm. Rusty Savage uh, today. He would, you know, he'd have a lawyer who would look at him and tell him you're going to have to plead guilty because mm-hmm. the DNA says you did it. Yeah. It's interesting that it's Apple that's doing it? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Plus, yeah. Do you think you'd be doing as much on the film and TV side as a writer, but for this, you know, as everyone refers to it, this sort of golden age of TV? Because I, I think it came up in that same panel with you and Richard North Patterson that... Um, there were certain writers in the past, like Hemingway, would not touch it. He wrote his yeah. novels. He stuck to the novel. In, in that age, would it be a different thing for you? And and there's just more allure writing for TV, given how the medium has changed. Well, you know, you, there's less violence to what you want to write with more time, mm-hmm. and that I think is the you know essential difference. Uh, you know, Faulkner did try to write movies. Um, most famously wrote the screenplay for the, the based on the Hemingway novel to have and have not um, and he wasn't very good at it and it's hard it's not hard to understand why if you've ever read a a, a Faulkner novel you know those interminable sentences and mm-hmm. you know just the incredible lushness and almost stream of consciousness Proustian type detail um, you know, and he's got to shrink it all down. So, yeah, he was a genius, but not at that medium. And that's probably the best example one can think of, of the mm-hmm. difference between the, the two media. So TV, when I was a kid, was just dreck. It was just bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every now and then there'd be a show like The Defenders, which had some substance. But there's a lot that's been on television, mm-hmm. and especially streaming, that has, you know... Um, tremendous depth. Um, Adrian and I just finished watching the two seasons of Euphoria, for example, and I, I there could be twenty different examples of watching the Bear, second season of the Bear. These are works of narrative art. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're really impressive. It's, we had Dennis Lehane on the show uh, some months ago, and he was talking about David E. Kelly, and he said this guy knows more. He's just amazing. He knows more about writing for TV than, you know, I'll ever know. And he's, he's just amazing. But I wonder about going the other way. I remember Matthew, the Mad Men writer and creator, was it Wiener Matthew or Weiner? Weiner, yeah. Weiner okay. Yeah. Matthew Weiner, he wrote a novel. And I think it was pretty good. I actually didn't read it, but I got pretty good reviews. But it wasn't like the yeah. success of Mad Men and other things. Has David E. Kelly ever tried writing a novel? I'll have to ask David next time we talk. Um, I don't think so. I mean, he directed one film and that kind of ran him out of doing that. Um, he is an amazing talent and a, and a true genius when it comes to writing for television. But he's figured out what he can do. You know, he's he's so busy and does so much and 
so much of it is great. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. so consistently great, too. I'll, I'll look at a show. I'm like, oh, I love this show. And then I come back later. I say, oh, of course. It's David, David Kelly. Kelly. Of course yeah. it's good. He's yeah. it's just the consistency of his. So um, I know there's the, the writer strike has slowed everything down. Yeah. But do you have an air date on, on Presumed Innocent? Well, they, they were talking about the first quarter of 2024. Okay. And I can't figure because David got the last script in just just before the you know the curtain fell with the writers' strike, so they wrapped it in the second week of June, and they're in post production now. The question, you know, I don't know. I mean, if the actors' strike continues, then nothing's going to happen because there can't be any promotion mm-hmm. uh, unless they've got. Well, they could have all of it filmed on the set. Um, purely guessing, I think it may get advanced to the last quarter of this year. But, you know, we'll just have to see. As a fan of the book and the first movie, I, I will be tuning in as soon as it's available. It's, it's looking we'll forward to it. We'll all be curious to know what happens. But, uh, you know, it, it was... I saw the first seven scripts, and David kept the last script tightly under wraps because he doesn't want... Um, Anybody know who did it in his version? So mm-hmm. I have no. Oh, that's fascinating. I have okay. no clue. And the the actors who were familiar with the book and the movie were like, I don't know how to act because I don't know who did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of David E. Kelly's genius. He's got him right. You know, everyone so, off balance. You know, I'm sitting in the courtroom. One of them, one of the actors said to me, "I've got a look of suspense on my face," but that's it's genuine. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, before we get to the lightning round, what is what's next for you? What are you working on? Uh, I am working on what I'm sure will be the last novel I write about Rusty Savage, but um, and I'm having a good time with it. Uh, Rusty's always been a year or two older than me, so um, but you know, it's his life has been in many ways more eventful than mine. So um, and uh, he's made strange changes in it in order to move on and mm-hmm. uh he's now living out in the country and you know that's where it starts and you know a crisis ensues in his family and and you know he he's called upon to rise to the occasion well looking forward to that any can you any dates or it's just sort of not sure I'm when that's gonna, gonna finish a draft of this first draft um I told my publisher I hope to do it, hope to get it to him by the end of September. So that means probably publication sometime in 2024. Oh, looking forward to it. All right, the lightning round then. Cool. Your favorite book as a kid? Easily The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, I read it when I was 11. Uh, It was really the book that confirmed in me the ambition to be a writer because I thought if it was that exciting to write to read a novel just imagine mm-hmm. how much more even more exciting it could have been to write it now Im- admittedly that was an 11 year old's conception of what it was like to be a novel I was you're an advanced when I was 11 I was still taking down the Hardy Boys I yeah. think the, the, uh, I kind of the Hardy you... Boys too but <laughs> book or books you're reading now well I just finished um, finished two books last week. Uh, one is a book by a Stanford pal of mine, Bain Kerr, uh, which is yet to be published, called Alamosa, but it's a very interesting kind of mystery, 
set in a middle of Colorado in a arid area the size of New Jersey. It's it's got a really interesting feel to it. Mm-hmm. And then I read uh, Gabrielle Zevin's uh, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I thought it was just terrific, just an absolute knockout of a novel about um, about you know people who uh, create video games and essentially uh, she treats video games the same way she would if the main characters were poets you know it's an expression of their personalities mm. quick quick sidebar back on process related to that though when you are in that phase of really putting pages on the pile are you also reading a lot yeah it doesn't i, I mean hemingway said he couldn't read while he was writing because he felt he would pick up somebody else's style but Mm -hmm. um that doesn't happen to me would you be careful about not reading another legal thriller and stick to nonfiction, or you you read anything no i read fiction Um, Mm -hmm. i read fiction far more than i read nonfiction. so i read three or four newspapers every day but um you know in a lot of magazines but uh, i don't read a lot of nonfiction books so everything i read is fiction Okay, back to biting around. Least attended book event ever. For me? Mm-hmm. Um, I once had an event scheduled at you know my legal alma mater at Harvard. And it was the night, I can't even remember who the professors were, but they were debating abortion. And you know, it was just an immense campus-wide event. So the publisher's rep and I open the doors to this room where I'm supposed to have this, uh, you know, little talk and book signing, and there was literally no one, <laughs> not a soul, not a single person. So um, you can't get lower than zero. You can't get. Although you know, Amor Tolls, who I know you know, was on here. He was saying a zero is better than a one. Yeah, one, you actually have to follow through and do the damn thing. (laughs) So uh, this next question is near and dear to my heart because my father was an avid handkerchief man. Will the pocket handkerchief ever make a comeback? Well, I'm so fashion backwards that... I didn't know that the fashion had gone the, <laughs> the, the, the had gone back out. The, the question is not valid. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah I, but I would, you know, fearlessly predict that it, if, if it's gone, it will come back. I've done it several times in my lifetime. That's funny. My my dad, he just couldn't understand how any man could leave the house without a handkerchief and. For years, through all the way into probably my early 30s, it was a Christmas stocking stuff where I'd get three white hankies in a package. Yeah. Well, and then I, he finally gave up the, on doing the, it. The back pocket handkerchief. Um, mm-hmm. I actually wrote a piece. Um, I can't remember who it was for, but. Uh, I read it. It might have been The New Yorker or something like that. Yeah. I, and, yeah. That, you know, it was just about, you know, the way the pandemic had totally brought back the handkerchief so and my, my grandchildren all know I've always got a handkerchief and when my friends have their first grandchildren that's the, the guys that's what I send them is 12 handkerchiefs <laughs> <laughs> I love it all right Chicago or New York pizza I gotta go with Chicago yeah. deep the deep dish style yeah. right yeah. yeah yeah I mean Uno Stues Malnati's I mean that's that's great that's great stuff. Yeah. 
And last question for Scott Turo. One piece of advice for the listeners. Well, for those people who um, have some thought of trying to write, I always say that, you know, I, I, Phil Knight, somebody who, you know, the founder of Nike is somebody who's followed my work and once wrote me a nice note and I wrote him back and I said, you know, Phil, I've got one beef with you, which is you stole the writer's slogan, which is just do it. You want to be a writer, then write. Mm-hmm. So just do it. Yeah, that's great advice. Scott, what an honor. Thanks for coming oh, in. Doug, thank you. It's a pleasure. Nice to be with you again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And, of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.